Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. In all the world, there is only one. The show about taking chances, chasing dreams, pursuing passions, and creating the life that you want. And doing it at any age. Growing Bolder is the positive, fun, life-affirming alternative to just growing older. It's about proving that it's never too late. And boy, do we have proof today. Yeah, here's some of it. We've got a fashion designer who's determined to start a movement and empower women. Also, Also, a former principal dancer for the Royal Ballet and the American Ballet Theater, who is now inspiring young dancers to greatness. Hey, how about a three-time Olympic champion and an Emmy-winning actor, screenwriter, film director, and film producer? That's not all. We've got a 65-year-old world pole dancing champion and the second oldest American to ever summit Mount Everest. All that today on Growing Boulder. a fashion designer and an author who not only has a passion, she's starting an entire movement around it. And it all began when she asked 31 women a single, simple question. And here is what that question is. What does it mean to be a woman? She then expanded the question to others, published a book about it, and started the Inspirational Woman Project. So, What has she discovered and where will it all lead? Let's find out as we welcome fashion designer, author, entrepreneur, and leader of the Inspirational Woman Project, Bree Seeley. Hey, Bree, how are you? Good morning. Hey, uh, uh, well, thank you for taking some time from what I know is a busy day for you. Uh, You're a fashion designer, so it makes great sense that you would ask the question, what does it mean to be a woman? But I get the feeling that it never was about market research to sell more dresses. It it seems (laughs) it's much bigger than that. Well, it did actually honestly kind of start that way. Um, it It was born out of my fashion label. And kind of what I realized with dressing women, my clothes are very feminine, and they're all about embracing that part of you and then, you know, kind of translating it to the outside world. Um, but once I started really getting into it, I was like, there's so much more here. And, w- like, women aren't really taught about femininity or about that piece of ourselves that um, is so inherent to who we are. But, we, you know, we all live in such a, a masculine world that we just were not taught about it. And I was like, man this could really be something. And every woman I talked to was just fascinated by it. And I was like, it's such a simple question. Why is no one asking it? Why is no one talking about it? So, so you did, and you asked the question of, of 31 people to start with. Was there something in their answers that made you think that this might lead to a book and maybe perhaps to an entire movement? It was less about their answers and more about like their reactions when being asked the questions. And then the conversations I was having with women just in in general, like I would go out to networking events and say, oh, yeah, I just started this blog project, and people were fascinated by it. And I was like, wow, like, it's just, it's like, it's not something that should be fascinating. Like, for me, it's something that should be normal, but it's not normal. And so that's really what made me want to pursue it deeper and further. Um, for me, you know, it's less about what the women say. And more about, you know, when I ask that question, it's more about the process that they go through than the answer that they arrive at. And, and what do you get from that? I mean, what, what are the common threads, Bree, that you have found, either the common insecurities, the common frustrations? Uh, uh, you know, what, what do women need right now that, that, that you're hope, hopeful that this discussion can, can help provide? Um, what I think is that, like I said a little bit earlier, is that women just aren't really tapped into being women. Like so many women don't know how to access their intuition or talk to it or use that as a guiding force in their life. Um, A lot of women will say, you know, strength is one of the things about being a woman, but then they're unable to maybe stand up for themselves um, and harness that power in their life. Um, another thing that really shocked me during the interviews was that when I would ask the women how they inspired the world around them, most of them said, I don't think I do. And that was one of the things that really hit me hard because these, the, you know, the initial batch of women that I interviewed were women in my network that I find inspirational and that I think are powerful and amazing and doing good things in the world. 
and for me to ask them that question and for them to come back and say, well, I don't really think I am inspirational was shocking. Like it was, it was, it was just a really interesting and, and kind of, I was very taken aback by it. You know, I'm curious, Bree, uh, what the age groups were or were there differences in them? Because, you know, the fashion industry is so oriented towards the younger demographics, but yet there are women 40, 50, 60 and more who are doing incredible things and have accomplished so much. Yeah, so in the book itself, the age ranges from 21 to 87. Um and honestly, I think there's like two 21-year-olds in it, and one of them's my sister, and so she had to be in the book, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, there is definitely a difference because at 21, women are, are, you know, they're just starting to kind of figure out their path. And at 87, you know, the 87-year-old was my grandmother, um, just really looking back on life and figuring out kind of reflecting more. So they definitely are at different points in their life, but they still have very good, you know, insightful comments on what it is like to be a woman. And yeah. We're talking with uh, Bree Seeley, who, of course, has her own fashion line, and uh, and she's the leader uh, of a new project, the Inspirational Women Project, where she's helping women define who they are and, and, and where they're trying to go. And, Bree, I, I read one of your great blog posts on the Huffington Post. Uh, I read several of them, but one of them was titled 12 Life Lessons from Inspirational Women. They were all great lessons. Um, any, any of them uh, that, that stick out for you as maybe the most favorite? Yeah, one of the one of the ones that really sticks out with me, and actually something that I've begun implementing in my life as um, just as a woman and you know as as an entrepreneur, is um, that to love yourself first is really important. Uh, one of the women uh, she runs uh, an organization called I Am That Girl, and she said that you know her her biggest thing that she recommends for women is to get up every morning and look yourself in the mirror and look past what you'd usually look at. Like, you know, don't look at your skin, don't look at your, your pimples or, you know, your blemishes or whatever, but like truly look yourself in the eye and hold that gaze for longer than you feel comfortable. And then tell yourself that you love yourself because if you, if you don't have compassion for yourself and if you're not believing in in yourself and loving yourself, then there's no way that you can do good in the world because everything starts in each of us as individuals. Um, and so that's one thing that I think is really important, you know, uh, with the media, with the fashion industry, with all this stuff, we're taught to kind of look outside ourselves for validation, but none of that stuff will actually truly make someone happy unless they're happy with themselves first. Are there things the uh, fashion industry can do or the things that you in that role uh, as, a, as a fashion leader can do to help change the culture, to help change people's way of thinking? Believe me, I am actively trying. <laughs> um, you know, it's one thing that I've kind of fought with a lot about the industry is that I love creating fashion. I'm very good at it. I've done it since I was seven. It's something that's just kind of like in my blood. Um, but the industry itself is something that I kind of shy away from because I don't like a lot of the stuff that goes along with it. So for me, you know, personally, I try to actively get models that are healthy. You know, when I have a photo shoot or a runway or whatever, I, I actually buy food and have it on set because I want to make sure that everyone's being taken care of and that everyone's feeling good and in a good place. You know, I, I try to pick girls that are, you know, maybe maybe they're still thin, which is a hard thing to break away from from the industry because my sample sizes have, you know, they have to be made almost to a certain size. But, um, but, but girls that are healthy in that, whatever size they are. Um, and, and then for me, too, like really standing up as a leader in the industry when I go to events and talking about things like this, I did have one woman say to me at one point when I started writing for the Huffington Post, she was like, oh, you can cover my fashion events. And I said, well, it's not about that. And she's like, well, then what are you writing about? And I was like, wow, there's this whole mentality that like, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's very kind of shallow and superficial. And, and I'm, 
I am actively trying to change it. I'm only one person, but I am doing my best. Well, thank you for for starting the conversation and keeping it going. Folks, she's not only selling women fashion. More importantly, she is now selling women on herself. You can learn more about Bree Seely, her fashion line, her movement. You can buy the book and more at Bree. That's B-R-I Seely, S-E-E-L-E-Y dot com. Coming up, he danced with Barishnikov, but what happened when the curtain came down? That's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Our partners at Florida Blue Medicare. It's important to know what's covered, so together we've created a guide that makes Medicare easy to understand. More information at growingboulder.com slash guide. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and you're listening to Growing Boulder this is interesting. You know, one of the world's, most of the world's top ballet dancers, how old, you know, they're all in their 20s. Some are still dancing into their 30s, probably at the oldest, but Robert Hill was a principal dancer with the Royal Ballet, the American Ballet Theater, and the New York City Ballet. And here's a guy who kept dancing into his 40s. Yeah, it really is remarkable. And when the curtain finally came down on his performing career, he didn't want to leave the art that he loved. He wanted to stay in ballet. So he did what is really a long shot. He began a new career as a choreographer and then artistic director. And he just may have discovered an even greater skill and passion. The Orlando Ballet is quickly building a reputation as one of America's premier dance companies, thanks in large part to the constant oversight of artistic director Robert Hill. All right, good. Good. What attracted me to this company was the fact that he works with us one-on-one. Twist. Bang. Has a lot of artistic directors, I I would say probably majority, they don't really show up to rehearsals. Robert's not only the artistic director, he's, you know, the resident choreographer, he's the ballet master, I mean, he does everything, so he's always in rehearsals, he's always leading rehearsals, and he's always putting his input onto things that he choreographed. Hill's path to renowned teacher, coach, choreographer, and art director began nearly 40 years ago in high school. You know, dance was not for boys where I, where I grew up and in, the, you know, the surroundings I was in. I started doing gymnastics and diving in high school, and both my coaches suggested that I um, take ballet so that I could learn how to point my feet and stretch and how to present myself, because that's presentational. Diving is presentational, and gymnastics is presentational, and um, that's how I got started. And he knew very quickly that he had found what would become his life's path. You start to realize, man, this is really a challenge. To do it really, really well, and I always love a challenge. And, you know, it was just the kind of thing that I, I didn't have to think about. it. Do I want to do this? Do I want to do something else? Do I want to be a dentist? Do I want to? No, I just, everything else went away. And the day after graduating from high school, Robert went away, moving to New York and studying at the School of American Ballet before attending the Philadelphia College of the Performing Arts. I had to go where the scholarships were because we didn't have any money, you know. Two to the back, and one, and two, and Before long, he was back in New York at the American Ballet Theater where his professional career took off. very, very quickly. Uh, I was taking company class and Mikhail Baryshnikov was the artistic director at the time and he came over and introduced himself and uh, two, two classes later I was offered a contract. Hill became a principal dancer with American Ballet Theater, the Royal Ballet of London and the New York City Ballet. He traveled the world as a guest artist for the Scottish Ballet, the San Francisco Ballet, the Australian Ballet, and others. And then I was off for uh, two years with this knee, uh, snapped ACL, and had it reconstructed, and then 
went back to American Valley Theater and danced for 10 more years. I had an amazing career. I danced in some of the greatest companies with some of the greatest directors, um, greatest stages, most amazing ballerinas for until I was 41. Hill's retirement from dancing did not mean a retirement from dance. He taught for ABT, Alvin Ailey, and more. He choreographed and staged major pieces for multiple companies before joining the Orlando Ballet to share a lifetime of experience and a unique vision for the future. We met some really fabulous, amazing people along the way. And I feel like I've collected a bunch of energy and information and tradition. Um, that I'm really enjoying passing on. It, it pours out of him the passion for these dancers and for this company. That you, you know, you feed off that. You know, we all feed off that. Absolutely, he's so inspiring every day, always learning something new. Hill is nurturing and inspiring. He can also be demanding. I'm pretty direct, and sometimes it's harsh, but I, I feel it's it's best to just be real straight so people know what you're dealing with. In this company, he expects us to, to learn choreography quickly, which is something a lot of people come in and they don't expect. Um, it, it teaches us a lot, how to be quick on our feet and learn, pick up choreography quick, because time is money, that's what he always says. So, <laughs> You know, we're a nonprofit, and a lot of people give us money so we can do this. So my feeling is, if nothing else, you got to give it your all, 3,000%, because people are giving you money so that you can do this. Hill is known for his ability to blend classical ballet with modern music and choreography, to celebrate and elevate the classics while bringing new fans into the theater. I think it's important for the community, it's important for the dancers to embrace the classical tradition and vocabulary um, and to be really, really good at it. Um, and, and also to be able to, to, to move and boogie. He's moved and boogied his way to a career in the art that he loves, deftly pirouetting from one challenge to another, a personal example to his dancers that ballet never has to end. He's definitely inspiring me about like how I can become after I retire, so that's a very good inspiration. For Hill, the journey is as important as the destination. While he wants a spectacular performance, what he needs is a dance company that understands that... This is not a drama company. That's one of the things he looks for, is a positive energy or good personality. One final thing that I've noticed that I think he, he goes after, he goes after dancers with nice big smiles. <laughs> That's a good thing. Yeah. Audience loves that, I guess. You see it from, the, from all the way in the balcony, right? Good times and great performances, all choreographed by Robert Hill. So just what does it take to be successful at this level? Well, it's a given that it takes creativity and a very strong artistic vision. But really, more than anything else, it takes strong leadership abilities, the ability to create a culture of excellence. And, you know, Bill, that's exactly what Robert Hill is doing at the Orlando Ballet. And, Mark, what a great story, too, because he is so much like a, like a great coach. You know, he's part motivator, part friend, part father, part boss, all mixed together. And that is not an easy thing to pull off, especially at that level. But he proves that if you follow your passion, anything's possible. Of course, it's easy to say that it's important to believe in yourself, and you have to risk failure and frustration to have any chance at all at creating the life you want. But it is tough to do, especially at first. And you know, that's why all of us need support and encouragement from the people that are closest to us. And it helps every now and then to have a pep talk from somebody like Rowdy Gaines. Hi, I'm Rowdy Gaines, three-time Olympic gold medalist. I'll say this as gently as I can. If you think your life is boring, if you say nothing exciting ever happens, it's your own fault. Get off the couch and get involved. Stop daydreaming and start doing. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're maintaining. You're not. You're either getting better or getting worse. We all are. 
We may be getting better or worse very slowly, but we are moving in one direction or the other. And that direction will gain momentum. The couch has momentum. Jogging has momentum. Laziness has momentum. Enthusiasm has momentum. The more you do something, good or bad, the easier it is to do and the harder it is to turn away from. So put your pride away and become a beginner at something. And don't fear failure. Everyone gets knocked down. The unhappy and unsuccessful stay down. You know how fast the last 30 years went? The next 30 are going to go even faster. You don't have a day to waste. Start growing bolder. A little tough love from one of the best, Rowdy Gaines. But boy, does he make some great points. It's easy to make excuses, easy to find reasons to stay on that couch and not risk failure. But as we hear every week on this program, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Coming up, one of the most talented comedic actors in the business reflects on a three-decade career in Hollywood that is far from over. John Cryer is next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and our next guest is got to be one of the most talented comedic actors I've ever seen. He is an Emmy-winning actor, screenwriter, film director. He's a producer, too. And, you know, his three-decades-long career is still going strong. He's done a little bit of everything throughout it. But he's best known for playing two pretty iconic roles, one in film and one on television. Yeah, who can ever forget his role as Ducky opposite Molly Ringwald in Pretty in Pink or as Alan Harper in Two and a Half Men. And, you know, over the years, he's experienced everything from a romance with Demi Moore to Charlie Sheen's meltdown. If it can happen in show business, it has pretty much happened to him or around him. Fortunately, he's put it all in his new memoir, appropriately titled so that happened. Let's welcome the one and only John Cryer. John, how you doing? I'm considering everything very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Congratulations on the book, because it really does have everybody talking these days, and really not surprisingly, because you have had a front row seat to the kind of excitement and success and, and dysfunction that Hollywood is known for. How are you still normal, or is that just an act as well? <laughs> uh, well, it was funny, because, yeah, it's just an act pretty much. Um, uh, it's funny because uh, in, in in writing the thing, I did. I was forced to sort of examine how come I ended up having all this crazy stuff happen to me, you know. And there's a point at which it's like, you know, a, a woman keeps having bad boyfriends. There's a point at which you say, "Hey, lady, it's you," you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and this book made me sort of say, "Oh, hey, hey, dude, it's you." <laughs> you know, there must be something I like about the craziness. Um, because it just keeps happening to me. Drawn to it like a fly to one of those uh, those fluorescent lights huh, outside. Because you grew up in Manhattan. Both of your parents were actors. You went to summer theater camp in high school. You made the jump to Broadway really early. It seems, John, it seems like you were born to act. You know, I, I, my, my parents weren't comfortable with me pursuing it, mostly because they were actors. And they knew how hard it was, you know, and how it can be really heartbreaking if you don't have the right attitude about it. Um, and so I, so my first, you know, when I was very young, I, I did not want to be an actor. It wasn't until my, my early teens that I, re- I, I, I decided, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, but once I, w- one of the things that was great about my sort of love of the madness was that it kept me able to to just keep trying in spite of everything because part of what I loved about the business was how stupid it was. <laughs> and you have excelled in a stupid environment. And I don't, yeah. <laughs> want, 
I'm congratulations. The king of the stupid environment. I don't want to gloss over the early part of your career, but 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 let's get to some of the big stuff. It's all in the books, folks. He he, he went from high school to Broadway very quickly. Then there was an LA production of the Broadway show that got him into film in 1986. When, when most of us first learned of you, you were cast in John Hughes' Pretty in Pink as Molly Ringwald's quirky best friend Ducky. You quickly became a pop culture icon, but yet. You didn't become one of the Brat Pack. How come? Uh, mostly because I was from New York, and I just didn't know those guys. You know, Andrew McCarthy and I were both uh, East Coast guys. Um, and actually, Robert Downey Jr. even, you know, was, was, uh, was East Coast as well. But, uh, but the Brat Pack was, you know, Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez and Judd Nelson, and they were all West Coast people. Um, and the, and actually, Rob Lowe and Emilio Estevez actually grew up together. They knew each other, you know. So I didn't know those guys. Um, and you know, it, the very first article about the Brat Pack actually was talking about what jerks they were. So you know, it, you know, so they start the group and and you know, every, anoint everyone jerks. That wasn't actually a group that I wanted to be a part of. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so I was, I never, you know, I was in New York doing theater and doing other stuff, uh, when, during the heyday of, of the Brad Pack. And, you know, for a lot of us that just met you in Two and a Half Men, you'd think, wow, this guy probably slid into this role and he's just a natural for TV. But is it true they considered you kind of a sitcom killer for a while? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because when you're doing television pilots, which are, you know, the, the seeds of a new show's, um, most of the time you do a pilot, it doesn't get picked up. In other words, it never gets to air. Nobody, they don't make any more shows. And, and it disappears. The, the, the studio never shows it to anybody, and it never happened. And, and, in a, and like George Clooney had, you know, 30 failed pilots or something like that. But then he hit it huge with ER. Well, in my case, it was kind of the opposite. I had shows that kept getting picked up and put on the air and then failing. <laughs> um, so um, that's actually worse because you're failing in front of everybody. And, uh, and so after four of those, you know, four high-profile flops, um, there was a real feeling in the industry that, that, uh, that perhaps I was the problem. Uh, <laughs> and even Newsweek magazine printed a whole uh, printed an article about how how it was pro- that I was probably the problem, uh, <laughs> and uh, and that that was hard to take. That was probably the low point. But you continued on. You end up winning two Emmy Awards for, for Two and a Half Men. And let's get right to it. Folks, we're talking with John Cryer, who was right there when Charlie Sheen totally melted down. You are a friend of Charlie's, have been a friend of Charlie's. But in the book, it's very obvious that you were not a fan of his behavior. You were upset by what he did and what he didn't do. Oh, yes. Uh, I, yeah, I was upset with him. I was worried about him because, you know, I thought he was going to die. You know, he was in and out of the hospital every now and then and, and uh, you know, and getting arrested every now and then and uh, <laughs> you know it was terrifying to watch somebody i knew you know fall down that rabbit hole and uh um but i was also you know really frustrated with him as a person um because of what he was saying and it didn't it wasn't it didn't seem like it was true you know it it uh um you know it wasn't my experience of the show at all um, it, and, and actually, one of the things in the book is it, that goes into some detail is that you know a lot of people felt like the explosion that he had with Chuck Lorre, our producer, must have been a long time coming. That they must have been fighting for years. And what was so shocking about the whole thing was, no, they weren't. They they never fought. He never had a crossword to say to Chuck until all the craziness just exploded. It was it was so it was. It was like somebody flipped a switch, and suddenly he was enraged, and there was no there was no understanding it at the time. Yeah, John, you seem like su- such a you're exactly how we picture you from the show. Just a real regular guy, very nice guy. You're very honest, and and in the last minute or so that we have here, I know you've seen it all. You've been through it. It's been on Entertainment Tonight and all those shows. You've in a world that chews people up and spits them out. You talked about your highs and your lows, John. What can we learn from you? What's What's the John Cryer takeaway so far in your life? Um, well, you know, w- what I've found is a part of, you know, the, I, I loved uh, the, how chaotic and crazy the business is, you know, and, uh, and it's only gotten more chaotic and crazy. It, it seems like every day, you know, and uh, w- what I found is uh, that, that what has always made me happy is I've always loved the struggle. 
You know, the years where things were lousy were kind of great, uh, and and the years where things were great were also great. <laughs> you know, and uh, uh, but if you can love the struggle, you're you'll be you'll be happy wherever your life takes you. Uh, words of wisdom from a great guy who has written a great memoir, folks. It's called So That Happened. And, you know, we hear a lot of uh, inside baseball from people in show business. But, but when you read his book, you hear it from a guy who has his wits about him, a guy who you can believe, uh, a guy who is still fairly normal. John Cryer, thanks so much for your time, and we can't wait to see what you do next. Coming up next, of course, we've had pole vaulters, but never pole dancers on this program until now. She's one of the most dominating competitors in a serious and legitimate sport you've probably never heard of. She's next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, and it's time now for one of our favorite segments. It's the surviving and thriving interview with the right kind of care and support and the right attitude. It's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to thrive in the aftermath. Yeah, Bill, I think everybody is going to enjoy this next one because uh, she's in her mid-60s now, one of the top pole sports athletes in the entire world. Uh, Amazing when you consider that she just took it up four years ago, and within three years, she won the World Pole Pole Sports Championship. So let's welcome the world champion, Greta Potterelli. Hey, Greta, how are you? I am doing fantastic, and thank you so much for having me on. Oh, man, it's our pleasure. And, you know, what you do is amazing. It requires incredible skill and strength. And let's get this out there right off the top. Uh, It does involve a pole, and you are a pole artist who performs a routine that's called pole dancing. But this is a legitimate sport, nothing like what you would see in a strip club. How do you describe it when someone asks you what you do? Um, I really haven't had the problem with people equating it to strip clubs probably because of my age, but I was a gymnast and I did uneven parallel bars. And so I said, I do gymnastics on a vertical pole. And I said, you've all seen Circus de Soleil. A lot of the people are in Circus de Soleil and we do, um, we tell a story. We try to find a muse and empowering muse to somehow connect with the audience and make a difference in their lives. And so I talk about it from the perspective of an art form and then there's also the sport aspect, which we're working very hard to get it in the Olympics, and we're making extremely good progress. So that's very exciting. So I look at it as a sport and an art form for me. And then the sensuality, I mean, that's, you know, that's a whole other element. That's a whole other genre as far as we're concerned. So, Greta, can you kind of explain what it what it looks like, what you do? You know, we've seen videos where you show, like, incredible, you make it look really easy, first of all, but it must take incredible strength to do some of the maneuvers. You know, it does at first. So for anybody that's trying it for the first time, do not get discouraged. I could not get up the pole the first two times. Um, a lot of it is technique. I think I had the strength then, but I didn't have the technique. And as you go along, you develop the core muscle. I mean, women come in and they say, oh, I would do this, but I'm too heavy. And I said, if you start doing pole, you will lose those pounds because you will be having so much fun that you won't even know that you're working out. And you develop the upper body, the core, the legs. Women that came in with cellulite at left because I think rolling on the pole a lot somehow like breaks up those fat deposits and you start eating healthier, it becomes a whole lifestyle because people that do pole, um, it's, it's such an empowering, positive community because we believe that we are the master of your destiny and uh, you just keep going after your dreams and we empower each other daily. And when we say, Greta, that you're the world champion, 
We should note that you are the 50-plus world champion, and you're 64. You are the oldest competitor in the world. You're beating athletes 10 years younger than you. Is that, is all, is that all true? That's true. And in um, Singapore, I won the, world, the Masters World Pole Art Championship, and I had to compete with 40-year-olds. And that's pretty tough because I think about it. I'm a quarter of a century older than they are. And as the sport grows, is there a chance that they will uh, create new age groups so that you won't have to compete against people 10 years younger? Or maybe better said, they won't have to compete against you? Oh, well, honestly, at this point, I don't know if they're going to go any higher because I don't think anybody else would be in the class but me. <laughs> that's the problem. There's, there's maybe one other person I know that's my age who's from Los Angeles who's quite good, and uh, we train a lot together. And we're about the only two that are over 60. But I think as it grows, I think it's going to blossom, and maybe down the road it will. But I was just elated to find out that I wasn't a has-been at my age because in gymnastics, by the time you hit your 20s, you're a has-been. And I wanted to keep doing gymnastics, and they wouldn't let me in the gym because they said I was too old and my insurance wouldn't cover. So I, you know, I along the way I trained on my own, I did martial arts, I did dance, and when I found out that the pole had categories for older women and older women were doing it, um, something that I could do the rest of my life, um, I was absolutely thrilled. You know, now, Greta, that you've done it for a few years and you've excelled at it, it's easy to understand, but can you take us to where were you? I mean, you, weren't you in your 50s when you first tried this? When you saw this sport, what were you thinking and what drew you to it? Well, I was 59 when I started, and at that time I tried to go back into extreme gymnastics, and I just found that my back couldn't take it. There's too much whiplash going on, and I kept throwing my back out for a day or two, and I said, has to be something else. And so I was on YouTube and I saw some videos of some amazing world champions who were in their 20s and the rest is history. It just, it, it struck my soul very deep as something that is artistic. Um, it's something that is very beautiful to watch and an art form that I could do. So as soon as I found a local place, I went down there and um, I was immediately hooked, I have to say. And so I started training about five days a week, about two hours a day. And that's, I do the same thing right now. Folks, we're talking to Greta Potterelli, who is the World Pole Sports Championship uh, champion at the age of 64. Uh, Greta, you may be one of the fittest 64-year-olds in the world, uh, and, and you really haven't gone unnoticed because in 2012, you became the oldest person to ever attempt the American Ninja Warrior course, and in 2013, you were on America's Got Talent. How did those appearances come about, and, and how did you do? Well, they con both of them contacted me, and as the American Ninja Warrior, when they contacted me, I hadn't I don't watch television, so I hadn't even seen it. I listened to the radio actually, <laughs> so I uh, thought, okay, this sounds like fun. Somebody talked me into doing it, and I got down to Venice Beach, and I saw this huge contraption and things that I had never done before in my life, like scaling walls and that sort of thing. But I actually found it to be amazingly empowering to be around so many people going after their dreams. Um, I actually did better than most of the women. At that point, no woman had made, had made it across the course. I think there was a woman last year that did. But it was, it was inspiring to do that. It was inspiring to um, just be around people that, that take negatives in their life and turn them into positives. There's a lot of people that have injuries or limitations, and so they started training to regain the strength again, and one thing led to another, and they were on the course. So that was uh, very empowering to me. And America's Got Talent, they, they called me. I must have had seven different producers that wanted me. And, and I know that I'm not what they're looking for. They're looking for a two-hour show in Radio City Music Hall, not a four-minute poll routine. So I know that. And so I kept saying, no, I'm not what you're looking for. But finally, I thought, okay, if I get on the show, maybe it'll just be an opportunity, a platform to somehow inspire people to go after their dreams. And so I went to L.A. and did my thing, and some of them loved it, but I guess it was Heidi that really loved it and moved me on. But Howard Stern 
looked at me and said, at your age, you should be doing this in an old people's home. <laughs> so it, so I didn't move on in that. But, you know, it was totally fine because the person that went on before me was Timber Brown. And he got the big, uh, I think he had about a 16-foot pole. And I had this little 9-foot stage pole because they told me I couldn't put the big one on. But he got to do it. And I am so glad that he got to go on I, because he's, he's doing so much for Timber's kids. And he's just an amazing athlete. And having two of them back-to-back, uh, it's pretty difficult because what he did was so sensational that it's very hard when you're close to the floor to get the kind of audience response as if you're doing a handstand 16 feet up in the air. So that's what happened with that one. But it, but I uh, I loved doing it. I had absolutely no expectations of going on. It was just another challenge in my life to get the message out there. And Greta, don't cut yourself short on that at all because what you did is inspiring to everybody because you're raising the bar for what's possible at any point in life. You are one of the most amazing 65-plus athletes alive. Folks, do yourself a favor. Check her out at GretaPontarelli.com. Watch her videos, but more importantly, hear her message of the amazing things that are possible for us all as we age. Thanks, Greta. Coming up from the pole dancing American Ninja Warrior to the second oldest North American to ever climb the world's highest mountain, that's next on Growing Boulder. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com slash podcasts. Kind of have a feeling this is going to be pretty interesting interview. Bill Schaefer here with Mark Middleton on Growing Boulder, and our next guest is an icon of mountaineering. In fact, he is the oldest North American to climb all seven summits, the highest peak on each of the world's seven continents, and the second oldest North American to reach the summit of Mount Everest, highest mountain in the world. Yeah, he is far from a one-trick pony, though. He's also a corporate consultant, a motivational speaker, an entrepreneur. And this year, he's contemplating something that few thought was ever possible, and that is reaching all seven summits again, this time in a 12-month period at the age of 77. Let's get an update on that and more as we welcome the great Werner Berger. Hey, Werner, how are you? I am well. However, there are a whole bunch of errors that were just announced. I'm the oldest person in the world to have climbed the highest point on each of the continents. I am also the oldest Westerner to have climbed Mount Everest, not the second oldest in North America. So, so we did not give you your full due. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm going to claim it. You can count on that. No, you absolutely should claim it. My apologies. I, I, I wrote that, but uh, I guess we didn't get the latest. Uh, anyways, let's talk about Mount Everest, because you did climb that at age 69 back in 2007. Uh, Everest, well known for taking lives. What makes you think that you want to do it again, this time in your late 70s? Oh, just to prove that age really is no barrier and the exhilaration of being on the mountains is also an, a drawing card. In fact, I might even call it addictive. Now, is it true, Werner, that, uh, well, you're just a kid? Because didn't an 80-year-old Japanese man summit Everest? Does that inspire you or make it less interesting? Oh, it makes it more challenging, definitely. If he can do it, I can do it. You know, most of us are, are intrigued by guys like you because most of us, you know, we want to live in our comfort zones. We're not willing to take, uh, you know, really any risk. Uh, and, and especially as we age, it gets harder. You're a big proponent of stepping outside our comfort zone, uh, of not saying someday I'll do this. Uh, what do you say to inspire people to take action? What works when it comes to trying to get people off the couch and into life? People have to keep dreaming. They have to keep inspiring themselves to, to follow up on their bucket list as opposed to 
capitulate to the belief that, oh, I'm too old to do that, or only young people do that. And, of course, the minute people stop dreaming, they really become relegated to their couches or their rocking chairs, which is really unfortunate. You know, Mark uh, has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, and he came back with this great quote that says uh, that he's heard along the way that says, somewhere between the bottom of the climb and the summit is the answer to the mystery of why we climb. So I ask you, Werner, why do you climb? Partly because of the exhilaration, uh, definitely because of the sense of beingness when I'm in that space. And what I mean by that is I cannot be on a mountain without being completely in the present. Some people talk about it as living in the now. And when I'm in that space, there really is an alteration in who I am being Everything around me is so much more beautiful, so much more elegant. So, yeah, the the words actually escape me, and and it's a sense of humility and this phenomenal grandeur. And I know I'm using a lot of adjectives, but those are the those are the thoughts, those are the feelings that accompany the climbing. And then, of course, the exhilaration in getting to the top is is amazing as well. We're talking with Warner Berger, who is the oldest person in the world to climb all seven summits. Did I get it right that time, Warner? You got that right. Amen, brother. Um, uh, you, you know, it, it's to do this, to do what you do at any age is phenomenal. To do it in your uh, in your late seventies is is beyond that. It's remarkable. What is your secret? I read somewhere that you're an advocate of high quality nutritional supplements. Can you tell us what you take, what works, what you believe in? Yes, and just before I do that, uh, I don't really believe that what I do is phenomenal because it, it really isn't. There are so many people that are fitter than I that could be doing this if they had the vision or the desire to do it. Um, Relative to supplementation, I learned that our foods are nutritionally depleted and we simply cannot get what our bodies need any longer from just eating even good foods. So I supplement with um, a multivitamin, but not one that I just buy off retail shelves because usually the the quantities or the potency isn't enough, the combination isn't enough. Um, so multivitamins, very definitely antioxidants, uh, addition of omega-3 fatty acids in, in terms of fish oil, and um, then I usually have a shake in the morning as breakfast as opposed to, you know, the re- regular breakfast of milk and eggs and toast and whatever. You know, Werner, you have accomplished things that, that very few others would even try. So you've also learned things that every one of us can benefit from. Can you talk about what we can learn from the things you've experienced? Oh, there are so many learning opportunities from being on a mountain. One of them is simply how phenomenal our bodies are and how much more we can do than we think we can do. So it really is an exploration of self. The other part is usually in climbs, or I take people on what I call high-altitude treks, um, the experience of being in a team and without anybody instructing that this is a team and you need to play in a certain way, people start seeing how do they react when the going gets tough. Are they really team members? Are they concerned about others? Or are are they only concerned about themselves? So coming off my tracks, people really talk about having life-changing experiences. And when I now incorporate leadership training with that, Now we have the best of both worlds because the training is from the outside in, which has no residual until there's learning from the inside out. And that's what people come away with, is really a deepened sense of themselves, a greater connection not only to the environment and to the mountains or the the climate that they're in, but to the people that they've been with. 
He is the great Warner Berger. Warner, we're going to have to get you back on. Uh, I know you've got something big planned. When all of the pieces come together, can we get uh, get you back on and talk about what is going to be your next great adventure? Absolutely. With pleasure. All right. Thank you so much. And, Bill, how about Warner Berger, 77 and still climbing the world's toughest mountains? I'm never going to do that, Mark, but, man, can you learn a lot from him. And if you haven't already, check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country. And we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingboulder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh